Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Hello, and welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guest is Robert Kerbeck, author of the upcoming book. It drops February 22nd. That's six days from now. Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. I, I am almost certain you have never heard of anything that goes on in this book. It dives into the world of corporate spying. It's a wild intersection between Hollywood and Wall Street. Roberts working as an actor while working as a corporate spy as well. Just collision of two insane worlds, universes, experiences, and there's so many good things in here, which is why he's on the podcast, because they're cool things, good person. Ah, it's good stuff. We're also talking about some of the favorite and least favorite celebrity encounters that Robert has had throughout his career, how he drew from his previous book, Malibu Burning, to write Ruse, and so much more. We're covering lots of good stuff in here. Robert's a great storyteller, and I know you're going to enjoy it. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast, and you can always support the show by heading over to the merch shop or the bookstore, all on goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Lots of goodies for you, just like there's lots of goodies in this conversation with Robert. To kick things off, for people who are maybe not familiar with you and your work, can you tell us your name and your elevator pitch, but can you also let us know the type of elevator that we're riding on? (laughs) It's a very dark elevator in the back (laughs) of the building that no one knows where it is and you need a key card to get into it, but the key card you've stolen from the security guard that you've knocked unconscious. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Uh, Yeah, so, you know, uh, my name is Robert Kerbeck. And I have written this crazy memoir about my life as a corporate spy called Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Um, Ruse uh, comes out February 22nd. And I'm very excited for people to get a glimpse into this world that I was part of for, you know, um, 20, 25 years. Um, but it's a world that most people don't know about, right, which is corporate spying. You know, we, we, you know, we've seen the Bond films and we know about spies in Russia and China and all of that stuff. But we don't realize that American corporations are spying on each other on a daily basis. Um, they're hiring people like me to do that spying. And uh, billions of dollars are on the line for these corporations for them to learn anything and everything they can about their competitors, about the talent at their competitors, about the projects that the talent is developing. Um, and so it's just an, an extremely cutthroat world that most people just have never even heard of. And was this something the first time you were asked to be a corporate spy? Were, was this something you were, had kind of like heard about, were a little familiar with, or were you also caught off guard? Oh, completely caught off guard. I had no idea. I thought I was selling magazine subscriptions or something. Um, So this was quite some time ago now. And when I graduated from college, uh, I was an English major and I had dreams of, you know, becoming an actor. But I didn't quite have the gumption to, to move from my hometown of Philadelphia to New York City to give it a go. And my father um, and his brother ran this uh, car dealership in Philadelphia. The Kerbeck family is very well known in Philadelphia. My great grandfather 
uh, sold horse carriages before automobiles were invented. And then he switched over to selling cars. Uh, the placard on the front of uh, my dad and my uncle's dealership said since 1899. And I was the oldest uh, child uh, of all the kids. And um, I was kind of expected um, uh, to take the business over. Uh, my um, great-grandfather was Armenian, came from Armenia. And so that there was this real kind of sense of, uh, you know, the the oldest takes over. And in, and in the case of the Armenians, the oldest son takes over. Um, and so there was a lot of kind of unspoken pressure that that was my future. And so when I graduated from college, even though I didn't want to do that, I kind of just went into that because that was what was expected of me. And I really struggled with the um, dishonesty of being a car salesman. I mean, and it's not, uh, you know, necessarily overt, uh, overtly dishonest. But, you know, at the end of the day, like most sales, you're trying to sell a product for as much as you can. Right. Um, and the more profit you can you know, sell whatever your product is, the more you make, the more your company makes. It's kind of American capitalism at its best or its worst, depending on what side of the coin, if you're the salesperson or the owner, or if you're the person that just bought a car for too much money, right? <laughs> um, and so uh, I did that for a while. I was pretty good at it, but it wasn't for me. And then finally, I got the courage to move to New York and uh, I needed a survival job, right? And I didn't have the um, I'm not a late night guy. I've never been a late night guy. So bartending was out, um, kind of didn't, not the most patient person. So being a server at a restaurant was out. And um, a buddy of mine told me about this job he had. He was very mysterious about it. He didn't give me a lot of details about it. And um, so when I went to the interview, which was kind of in the on the Upper East Side of, of, of Manhattan in this kind of fancy doorman building. And I was a broke actor, you know, living in a squalid, you know, uh, you know, cockroach infested apartment with two other people in this tiny room. So all of a sudden I knew whoever this woman I was interviewing with, she was successful. She was wealthy. She was well to do. And when I you know, got into her apartment. It was fancy and gorgeous, and it looked like it was decorated out of some magazine. And and I uh, had my resume. I actually had it in a briefcase, which shows you how long ago this was. And um, never asked me for my resume. Never asked me kind of anything about my skills. Just kind of took a look at me, asked me some perfunctory questions, and sent me on my way. I was pretty sure I had blown the interview, wasn't getting hired. And then my buddy called, and he said, "You're hired." you start training tomorrow. I still had no idea what I had been hired to do. But again, I just assumed it was some sort of sales. And I knew I could do sales, magazine subscriptions, or get people to buy season tickets to the theater or the opera. I had no idea. And the next day, I went out to Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Back then, Williamsburg was hell on earth. <laughs> uh, the crack, epi crack epidemic was hitting hard. Um, you know, I, I joke in the book that there were no hipsters with beards. There were no coffee shops. Uh, there were just hard looking human beings and um, went into this building, you know, uh, no elevator, you know, uh, filthy people screaming behind doors, um, climbed the stairs, fifth floor, walk up, whatever it was, knocked on the door. And this attractive young woman opens it. She's got a little bit of an Irish accent and she takes me in. Um, and she says, come on, you'll come work in my bedroom. <laughs> and then I, then I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is a little, quite a bit different from sales. Uh, and, um, but she sits me down and she begins to show me that what we're going to do is we're going to 
misrepresent who we are. We're going to make up names. We're going to make up stories. And we're going to get people at corporations to tell us things that they should not. And that was the beginning of the ruse. Was it something that you picked up pretty quickly or, or did it take some some practice? Can you take us back to that, that very first call you made? Of course, I was terrible. You know, uh, <laughs> I was just, you know, fear stricken. And um, she kind of did, a, a you know, a, an example call for me. And she put on this persona and she put on this Irish accent and she was telling these stories that she you know, was a young you know, girl from Ireland. And and uh, and of course, the operator was Irish, you know, of Irish you know, descent. And they bonded and chatting. About, and the next thing I know, she's getting the operator. Forget about somebody in a particular department or division. She's getting the operator to crack open these charts and to read her all this information. And and it was just amazing to me. And um, so when she turned the phone over to me to do the same thing, of course, you know, the operators were basically hanging up on me. I was I was doing a, a, a lame attempt at some Irish accent because I, I thought at first that to do the job, you had to do an Irish accent. So, you know, I, I was kind of <laughs> can channeling. we can we hear that accent? Oh, my God. I'm so bad at I was channeling like they're after me lucky charms <laughs> to try to get it right. You know, I just kept repeating that in my head like a mantra, like they're after me lucky charms. Uh, and it did not work very well. I didn't get any information. And um, and this went on for quite some time. You know, it, it is it's one of those jobs over the years. I'll kind of fast forward a little bit. Um, but over the years, every friend I had uh, that I was honest and told them what I did for a living, which was not not as many people because I didn't want you know a lot of people to know about this because there were not only ethical questions, there were legal questions. And so, um, but all the friends that knew about the job, they all wanted the job. They said, oh my God, there's a job. I can work from home and I can make great money. Uh, sign me up. Um, and of course, this is pre-internet. Um, of course, today, everyone works at home, right? With COVID um, and people are enjoying that. And, and a lot of people I know don't want to go back to the office, right? <laughs> um, but back in, in the day, you know, that wasn't really a possibility at any jobs. And so to be able to do that, people were just jumping up and down to try the job and not one person, forget about lasting a day, most people didn't last an hour, right? They just were unable to do it. They were unable to to even consider doing it. They would make one or two phone calls and they said, forget this, right? Um, so that first day, I kind of felt that some of that, um, but I needed the job. I really needed the job. Um, and I was in New York and I was going to go broke if I didn't you know, make money. And it seemed like it you know, was a great job for an actor because you had flexible hours. Again, you did it from home. You know, you could go to an audition and then come back and work for two hours. Then you could go to another audition and come back and work for three hours. Um, so it was a perfect job for me. So I was really motivated to succeed. And so I just kept working harder and harder. Um, and I, I, you know, had the gift of gab, you know, being the son of a car dealer um, and <laughs> being an actor. Um, I had that. So that was going for me. And my, my dad was a financial guy. He was really into the stock market and Wall Street. And so I had a sense of, of that world. And a lot of the calling we did was Wall Street related. We were calling major financial institutions, banks, uh, insurance companies. 
Um, and over time, we we branched out and we basically, you know, there was no industry that we did not go after for information. But always the main focus was Wall Street. Um, so um, so I had a sense of that world. And um, those things, the gift of gab, a little bit of the business sense really helped me kind of hang in there as I developed what we call the ploy, the ruse. For people who haven't who are like this is blowing their mind just hearing this so i would i would guess most listeners if not all of them i are you also like is your your main goal on these calls to get specific information like you're given this is what you need to be trying to to extricate or was it often kind of a discovery phase on the call like are you taking notes during this too i'm i'm just yeah. picturing like you know essentially like a a beautiful mind type of of chalkboard uh, yes. going on, but all maybe all within your head. <laughs> ah, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about the job is the amount of concentration it requires. So even though you're alone in a room, uh, you know, wherever your desk is set up, I for me, it was always uh, really uh, critical that it was super quiet. There were no distractions because the concentration required to keep your story straight, to be listening so intently because we became professional, not only bullshitters, but professional listeners. I could hear in the silence on the line what the other person was thinking about whether they were believing my story or whether they were not believing my story, right? What, what did I need to say something else that I need to keep my mouth shut and hold for a moment, right? Um, and all the time that this is going on, I'm sitting here with my pad so that when they are talking, I'm writing furiously. I'm not only taking down what they're saying, but as they're telling me information, I'm making more notes about what other information I might try to get off of what they've just told me, right? Um, so yeah, so your, your brain is just going hard. Your hand, I mean, my hand would be cramping many times because I'm writing so fast. Um, Sounds and, like me in college, seriously <laughs> taking notes. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was, um, you were saying like your listeners have no idea about this world, at, you know, and in, in the beginning, I kind of didn't understand a lot of the information that I was getting. We would be given parameters for what the client wanted. And so when we first started doing this job, remember, there was no internet. There was no LinkedIn. You couldn't Google, you know, uh, J.P. Morgan or uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, what are they doing? Who are their top people? Uh, what divisions do they have? You know, who's running this team? Who's the star on that team? Um, what products are they coming at? You know, all of the things that my clients wanted to know. And so basically I tell people, I was LinkedIn before LinkedIn was invented, right? <laughs> and we know we know how successful LinkedIn is. All of your listeners, 95% of them are on LinkedIn because to try to get a job, to be in the corporate world, you have to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn now has become an incredibly important tool for corporations searching for talent. But back in the day, there was no way to know who was at a company without hiring someone like me to call up and what we would start with, the first thing we were asked to obtain was the company's organizational chart, right? Who ran the group, who the managers were in the group, 
who the people on those teams were, what those teams did exactly, who their clients were, what deals they were working on, who were the top people on the teams, right? Because back in the day, if I'm on an equity derivative sales team and I go and do an interview at another firm, I'm going to tell them I'm the best person on the team. I'm the one of the top two on the team. We would get the actual rankings, right, in terms of revenue of the 10 guys on the equity derivatives or exotic derivatives, whatever the team was. We would get the exact rankings so that our clients, if they wanted to poach some of those people, which, of course, is what they were trying to do because Wall Street and corporate America is so cutthroat, right, they're always trying to steal the top talent. They don't want to interview the last place salesperson or the last place trader or the last place banker. They want to know who are the top two, who are the rock stars. And that was what we did. And again, in the pre-LinkedIn era, that information was worth, forget about millions of dollars, sometimes tens of millions, sometimes literally hundreds of millions of dollars. At one point, right before the crash of 2008, you may remember the world was... Um, Everybody was um, getting mortgages. You know, you you know, you didn't even have to have a job, and you could get a mortgage on a on a home loan, right? And then, of course, that began this whole kind of house of cards that then kind of created the the circumstances for the you know the Great Recession, right? And when right before the crash came, all of these corporations were doing all of these shenanigans, which are uh, detailed in the movie, The Big Short, right? And they were doing all these credit default swaps and all of these complicated financial instruments, which I'm not gonna go into here because it's quite complicated and also a bit boring. If you really wanna understand them, um, who is the wonderful actress in um, uh, uh, The Big Short who, who explains what credit default swaps are while she's naked in the bathtub? Oh, Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie, right. If you want to know about credit default swaps, don't listen to Robert Kerbeck. Go watch Margot Robbie in the bathtub, okay? <laughs> the people that were doing these deals, they were doing these trades, these deals pre-crash were making these firms insane amounts of money. One of the deals that these this team of traders at Morgan Stanley did, eight-person team, netted Morgan Stanley one billion dollars on a trade. My clients wanted to know who are the eight traders on that team because we want to steal them. Kerbeck, can you get us the names of those eight traders? Now you might go, well, how hard can that be? Let me tell you, nearly impossible. Those pe it was like basically trying to go undercover into the CIA and get into, you know, uh the farm and 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 infiltrate. Yeah, I mean it was so incredibly difficult. So when you got information like that, which I, of course I did, um, because I was considered at the time to be the pre-arguably, the preeminent corporate spy in the world, that information from my clients was so incredibly valuable because if they were able to get one of the guys on that team, they could basically have the secrets of how those deals were done, how that deal was done, so that they could replicate that now at Credit Suisse or at Goldman Sachs, or at Wells Fargo, or whatever firm it might have been, right? And so that information that I was getting, this organizational information, which then I would build on and get more and more information, you know, we would always start with the structure of the corporation, so we understood who the players were, and then we would go deeper and deeper, adding on more information. Um, and some of that information, we would just 
it, it would just come in the course of conversation. Sometimes, you know, a source would be giving me information and they would just, just keep talking and talking and talking and talking. And then the next thing you know, they would tell me something that I thought, oh my God, I cannot believe they just told me that. Um, and it was just really fascinating. Um, you know, it was almost like what we did was and sort of, this is true, sort of was a form of hypnosis um, where people were literally under the spell. Um, and once they were under the spell, they would tell you anything. Was there a, a particular piece of information, whether whether you detailed in the book or not, that when you were being told it, like your jaw actually dropped because you were like, I can't believe someone's telling me this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the sh most shocking things were, because remember now, I'm misrepresenting who I am. Oftentimes, I'm misrepresenting and claiming to be someone within the corporation, someone of influence and power within the corporation. And so many times in these conversations, information would come up about deals that the corporation was doing, which, of course, were secrets and non-public. So I would learn information about acquisitions, um, you know, which, uh, you know, of course, if I had wanted to, and, and to believe it or not, because um, I'm telling you about these things that I did, which were unethical, when, you know, I'm lying for a living, but there was a line that I did draw. And one of the lines was, I was not going to trade on any of this information. Um, you know, again, uh, the vast majority of time I was doing this job, I was trying to be an actor, right? So I wasn't doing this job to, to get rich. I wasn't doing, it was just to pay the bills, you know, and that was the case for many, many years. It was only kind of later on when I finally gave up on the dream of acting and really went full into corporate uh, espionage that all of a sudden then I was, you know, making real money. And, and, you know, you'll see that transition in the book, but that was a line that I drew. I felt like, you know, me getting information that theoretically is getting people better jobs, um, okay, you know, um, uh, the means I'm using are, are uh, you know, uh, you know, not above board. But, you know, uh, at the end of the day, people are getting better jobs. But the idea that I would take this information that I would learn about a, uh, about a, a secret uh, corporate acquisition and use that to trade on it, for example, stock and insider trading, I, I was never going to do that. But to me, that was, you know, I was already taking great enough risks with the spying but to then also add insider trading onto it, um, that just seemed like uh, a, a bridge too far. <laughs> I felt like for <laughs> I felt like for sure, you know, if that happens, you are going to jail for a significant period of time. And um, and I could have gone to jail for the spying that I did, but it, it seemed like it was a gamble that I was willing to take. Insider trading was not a gamble I was willing to take. I think that's a fair decision in the in the long run. There, yeah. <laughs> Taking a quick break here to share a show that I think you'll really enjoy. Did you know that Big Bird was originally scheduled to fly on the Tragic Challenger space shuttle mission? Or how about this one? The guy who invented Pringles was buried inside of a Pringles can. Well, it seems like a tight squeeze to me, but you do you. Here's a weird one. The CIA once invented a dart gun that would give people a heart attack without anyone knowing they'd been shot. All of these topics are from episodes of The Internet Says It's True, a podcast by comedian and magician Michael Kent. Every week, a listener gives him an idea of a crazy, bizarre story from history that sounds fake, but is 100% absolutely true. 
Every episode ends with Michael giving a pop quiz on the topic to one of his show business friends. It's like taking a history class, but where all the topics are weird and fun, and you won't get lectured if you don't know something. Or maybe that was just my experience with history. Listen and subscribe at theinternetsaysitstrue.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Now, you had mentioned that earlier when you, you'd tell friends about this and kind of, you know, there's a very small group of people, obviously writing a book that goes out to the world, telling a, a larger amount of people. So was there a specific moment where you were kind of like, okay, I need to, I need to write about this and, and share this story? Or did that just kind of evolve over the years? I mean, the first thing is, is, you know, there's a statue of limitations, right? So um, I haven't done this buying now for quite some time. So I'm safely outside the statute of limitations for, you know, whatever possible, you know, crimes um, I committed. And because I was outside the statute of limitations, I started writing about it. And I was at a writer's conference. And I just wrote this essay. And it was kind of about my father and leaving the car dealership and uh, leaving the car car dealership because I, I just wasn't cool with the kind of, you know, um, you know, chicanery that you need to do to pull off sales. And of course, what's you know, ironic is that I stumble into a career as a corporate spy, right? So I leave the car business because it's not honest, and I stumble into something that's far more dishonest. And so I wrote a story about that and my father's reaction to it and my relationship with my father. And I read it at a writer's conference and people flipped. I couldn't believe it. And they flipped over the whole story of corporate spying. And they were just, uh, they they said, oh, I've never heard of this. You know, this is unbelievable. I didn't never knew this went on. Like, this is crazy. You have to write about this. And um, and I always knew it was fascinating because, like I said, whenever I would mention it to a friend and, of course, I would joke uh, at, at cocktail parties, people would ask me what I do. And I would joke a little bit about being a spy. And, I, and they'd say, well, what does that mean? And I'd say, well, if I told you, I'd have to take you out back and kill you. Right? <laughs> um and then I would leave it at that. I wouldn't say anything else more, anything more about it because I, you know, was smart enough that, I, you know, I knew that what I did was for sure in the gray uh, and, and, you know, maybe in the extremely dark gray uh, in terms of legality. And I didn't want to, uh, you know, say anything or do anything that somehow work could get around. And who knew? I just was playing it very, very, uh, being very cautious. And um, so I think that um, that stead me well, right? Because, uh, you know, knock on wood, it looks like uh, I've gotten away with it, so to speak. Um, And I think that when I read that at the writer's conference and I knew I was past the statute of limitations and people responded to it so well, I said, I've got to write this book now. It's it's time to tell this story. And um, I have been really... Um, amazed, and, you know, as the book is coming out now, and uh, the reviews are coming out, and people are writing things about it, and and that that is the consensus: is people are just flipping out, going, "I never knew about this. I never knew that major corporations, on a daily basis, are paying people like you tons of money to spy on their competitors, and it's this crazy cutthroat world." And every American corporation, every international corporation is doing this. And of course, they do it with all these different ways and mechanisms so that they have plausible deniability so that they can say, oh, my gosh, we had no idea what Robert Kerbeck was doing. Um, And just as an example of how uh, untrue that is, two of the individuals that I personally presented my 
stolen information, the information that I, you know, use misrepresentation to obtain. Two of those individuals are today one step away from being CEOs of their respective companies, which are two of the largest financial institutions in the world. Yeah, think about that for a second. Those individuals would say, oh my goodness, this is terrible. We had no idea. We never would have had anything to do with Robert. We would have, well, guess what? That's a lie. (laughs) That's a lie. Now, this is not your first book. You also wrote Malibu Burning, the real story behind LA's most devastating wildfire, which has also been very well received. So congrats on having two books that people have very much enjoyed and are, are excited to read and spread the word about. I, obviously, they're very different stories, you know, corporate spying versus wildfires. I mean, I guess you could argue they're both, you know, f- like fire drills, but uh, there's <laughs> certainly, you know, certainly a, a different topic and, and almost even tone between the two of them. But were you able to take some of the things that you learned from writing Malibu Burning and, and apply it with Ruse? Oh, that's a great question. Wow. Um, boy, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, you know, one of the things I learned, um, so I, while I was an English major in college, um, I could never sit still long enough to write really very much. Um, and, um, I also uh, wanted to meet uh, women. Um, I was paying my way through college. And so um, the first couple of years of college, I just worked 32 hours a week while going to school. And so I just didn't have any time for any uh, social life, which was really uh, made college tough. Um, and finally, my junior year, I went to University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. My junior year, I was accepted to be a resident advisor. So I got my room for free. I got my meal plan for free. And I was able to not work anymore um, because with the loans I was taking and the RA job, um, I could make it, right? And so the first thing I said is, man, I, I got to get a girlfriend because I've been, you know, basically by myself for two years. And, um, you know, where am I going to meet, uh, you, know, um, you know, a cool, happening, uh, interesting woman? The theater. Um, and I had never really done a play, but I auditioned for a play and I got hired and turned out I really liked it. And, and um, I started getting hired for more plays and the leads in plays. And that led me into wanting to be an actor. Um, and that's a big part of the book, how you know my acting career and, and um, some really um, big jobs that I had uh, working with you know, huge, famous people, um, getting great, incredible rave reviews in the New York Times and the New Yorker, um, and being very close to having a very successful career. Uh, I mean, I certainly worked as an actor and and, and uh, got a pension from the Screen Actors Guild and had representation for over a decade, you know, manager and agent and all that stuff. Um, but um, I circled back to writing later in life, right? After the acting career went away, after I gave up the spying and circled back to writing later in life. And the first thing I started writing were short stories um, because I always loved short stories and I wrote these short stories and the short stories started to get published. And what the short stories taught me was how to write 15 pages, 12 pages, 13 pages, not much more than 15. I run this writer's group, the Malibu Writer Circle. People are constantly bringing in the 27-page short story. And I say, I'm sorry, but that's not a short story anymore, right? Um, 15 pages, John Irving, I think, said uh, the, fifth, the perfect short story was 15 pages. Um, and uh, Ben Percy, another really uh, great short story writer, said, 
When your short story hits 17 pages, you're pushing it. And so I got in the habit of writing these short stories that were, you know, 10 to 15 pages, maybe occasionally 16 pages. And what that taught me was how to write a chapter in a book. So now when I write chapters in a book, and now this is getting back to Malibu Burning and Ruse, is I'm thinking about that as I'm writing a chapter. Is I want my chapter to be around 15 pages, 12 pages, 13 pages, 16 pages, you know. Uh, and I don't make that a rule, but it definitely is a firm guideline. Um, I know for me as a reader, you know, I like stories that move. Um, I want I want to be excited to turn that page. Um, and so, you know, sometimes if you have, whether it's a short story or whether it's a chapter in a book that's 32 pages, you know, it, you know, it's really got to be, you know, uh, lights out to, to hold a reader's interest for that amount of time, I think. Um, and so the short stories helped me with writing Malibu Burning. Now, Malibu Burning was a little bit different because each chapter told the story of the worst fire in L.A. County history, the 2018 Woolsey Fire. Each chapter told the story of the fire from a different perspective of a different individual or maybe a different group of individuals. So that was really, they were, all, they were almost short stories. They were short stories because they were different protagonists and they were linked by the theme of the fire. And then when I got the ruse, um, it was a little bit different, obviously different story. And, um, but I used that same technique, which was, okay, I'm going to have these stories all linked by the through line of it's, it's the story of my life. Um, but I'm going to make sure that I use these things I learned in Malibu Burning and I learned in writing short stories, which is to keep these chapters, you know, a certain length so that they're moving. And, and each chapter kind of focuses on a certain story, a certain type of ploy that I learned, a certain uh, time of life. So for example, there's a chapter on my experience with OJ Simpson. And when I worked with him on the set of this exercise video, right before the infamous double murders, um, the exercise video that I was part of uh, and hung out with him on the set for three days while we were shooting this video and he and I became friends. Um, and that exercise video was subpoenaed in his trial and was part of the TV series that came out uh, on FX uh, just a couple of years ago. You know, so there's a whole chapter on that incident and what it was like for me to be with O.J. Simpson, working with him uh, in that very unusual moment in time right before his world was about to fall apart. Um, and so that that's a chapter, right? And so, that, so there were these chapters, and they're all kind of little bit, uh, you know, like stories, short stories, and they're linked, of course, by the theme of taking you through my life and this crazy career as a spy. I wish I had read that quote on uh, page length before writing my own book of short stories, but I think I, I think most of them are under the 15-page the length. I kind of agree. I think I think I, that's a, a solid range to shoot for. Um, you can you can still get nice things. So I like I like that as a, a set of guidelines. And you also said segued kind of nicely there with the experience of working with OJ Simpson on a workout video. I'm curious because again, as an actor, you go on a lot of auditions, seeing you know a lot of a lot of different scripts, all that good stuff. What's the most unusual thing you've auditioned for? <laughs> it might be that exercise video, honestly. It might be because, I, and, of, and of course, it's easy to say that in retrospect, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, what happened was my manager at the time um, is married to this woman who's a director, and she did a, a, directed a lot of, you know, basically you'd call them in, infomercials, right? And um, 
Nancy directed these infomercials and she was directing this uh, exercise video with OJ Simpson. And my manager called me up one day and he said, Hey, how do you want to make, you know, you want to make some easy money. Um, you know, Nancy's directing this exercise video. One of uh, my managers was this uh, great guy, Bob McGowan. Um, Bobby uh, represented Julia Roberts in the early days. And he's represented many, you know, really well-known uh, actors and he's a great guy. And he said, hey, one of uh, his other clients, uh, Mike Mahan, who was a friend of mine, Mike's going to do it. Um, you know, you get a, you get free sneakers. And at the time, I remember uh, my sneakers had a hole in them that I was using shoe glue to plug. Right. Um, because remember, I'm a broke actor. Right. And so my shoes are falling apart. And so the, in, the idea of free sneakers plus pay to do this exercise video, I, I said, sign me up. You know, you know, who's it with? What's it? You know, uh, O.J. Simpson. You know, and I grew up, I'm of an era where I remember OJ as a football star. And I remember him as the announcer on Monday Night Football. And I remember him from the Avis commercials, you know, hurtling the, the turnstile. And, you know, he was sort of a hero, right? And so I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get to meet OJ Simpson and hang out with him. You know, this is incredible. Um, and so we, you know, we went, my buddy Mike and I, uh, we went to this uh, video um, and I thought I was told it was going to be, we were going to be doing push-ups and sit-ups and guy stuff. It was a workout video for guys because I'm the worst dancer in the history of mankind. I said it right up front. I said, there's no dancing in this. It's, no, no, no. It's just guy stuff, jogging, <laughs> boxing, you know. And the first day I get there and I'm introduced to the choreographer. And the room that we're going to shoot in, it's a dance floor. And I already have a, a, a predisposition to sweating when I'm nervous. And instantly I'm like soaking wet, right? I'm just, you know, just <laughs> like sweating. I'm a basket case. And, and then, of course, sure enough, they line us up and they, it, it's the choreographer who is this guy, two really beautiful women, uh, Mike, myself, and OJ, right? And the choreographer does this little series of routines. The two women get it instantaneously. Mike is a really good athlete. He picks it up. OJ's obviously a Heisman Trophy winner, all pro. He picks it up and I am lost. Lost, just looking literally like the proverbial, you know, you know, kook uh, on the dance floor. And um, the uh, choreographer comes over. I'm pretty sure he's going to say, Robert, you're fired you know, get the hell out of here. How did you get this job? You know, uh, and um, OJ makes a joke. Hey, Rob, thanks for making me look so good. And because OJ made that joke, they didn't fire me. Because OJ basically said, hey, this guy's making me look good. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so basically OJ vouched for me he was basically saying, look, I want someone in this because I think he was a little nervous about some of the dance kind of moves. Uh, and he, you know, it's his video and he's got a reputation and he did not want anybody looking at him like he wasn't as good. And so right away, the, the attention would all be on me in terms of the bad dance moves. Um, and that was the start of this kind of connection that OJ and I had on the set where he was became my buddy. He was such a, and this is what's amazing, um, because of course we know a very, very uh, uh, different side and a horrible side of O.J. Simpson. Uh, but at the time, he was this incredibly gregarious, 
friendly, charming man who took a liking to me. Not that my friend Mike, not that the choreographer, not to anybody else. I don't know why, but he just became my bud. And at one point um, he said to me, hey, Rob, you want to see this, uh, this new pilot that I did? And he takes me and he pops in a video cassette and he pulls me aside. And the only one he was showing was me. I say, hey, this is my character. It's this show about uh, uh, Navy SEALs. And my character is a knife expert. Now think about that for a second, right? He's just shot this pilot where he's playing a knife expert. Uh, I, had to, I had to undergo training for the film. Think about that. He had to undergo training and he's a knife expert. <laughs> uh, it, it's just unbelievable. And um, so he shows me this video and he bonds with me. But as the shoot goes on, he starts to um, hit on um, this attractive blonde woman. And again, I didn't re realize this at the time, but once I saw photos of Nicole Brown Simpson uh, on TV after she'd been murdered, I realized how much Nicole Brown Simpson resembled the female dancer in this exercise video. It was shocking. Um, and of course, at the time, I didn't know that. But OJ starts uh, hitting on this woman and he starts doing so in a really um, horrible, um, harassing manner. Um, and he's saying horrible things in front of the cast, in front of the crew, in front of the female director, in front of me um, about what he's going to do to her and how many children they're going to have. Um, and at a certain point, I pulled her aside and I said, hey, you know, uh, look, do you, you, you know, do you want to call someone? Do you want to call the Screen Actors Guild? We can get the Screen Actors Guild down here in a heartbeat and, you know, they'll put a monitor on the set and he'll have to stop. Um, and um, and I couldn't kind of tell, you know, what she wanted to do, but she, you know, but she said no. And, and my sense is that, you know, and remember back in the day, this is in the mid 90s. I'm sure she was concerned that all that would happen is that she would get fired. Uh, um, I, of course, I would have been fired uh, because back in the day, you know, the star was the star and that kind of um, behavior that we would not tolerate, I hope and pray we would not tolerate on the set today um, was um, somehow acceptable. Um, and she said, no, no, you know, I, I can handle, I'll deal with it, whatever. And, and so I didn't say anything. Um, and, um, it was really, um, you know, terrible behavior. And, uh, and I write about that, um, and, and some other things that he said, um, on the set, which are really just, you know, just you, 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 when you read them, you'll be dumbfounded. It's really quite incredible, especially now, of course, given what happened, uh, hearing what he said on the set, it's just like, you know, you, you just can't make this stuff up. Always the things where you're like, certainly that can't be true. That that are the true things. Like that, if if someone tried to create that out of thin air, they probably wouldn't be able to. But then it happens in real life, and it's yeah, it's it's just wild to think about. Yeah. But again, I feel like again segueing kind of nicely into our final question. You're almost off the hook here, but your top three. <laughs> you have met a lot of people both at, through acting and through. Uh, book promotions and and just you know being a like you're saying being good with the gift of gab being able to to meet new people and and connect with them pretty quickly. So let's hear your top three favorite celebrities you've worked with. Well, I think number one would have to be Paul Newman. Um, um, and I did work directly with Paul, but I was invited. Paul and his wife saw me in a play I did at the Actors Studio, 
And one day I came home and there was a message on my voicemail from Joanne Woodward inviting me to their home um, uh, for this salon type event. And, um, and I was so excited to get the call, but I was also kind of a little disappointed. I, I, I thought maybe they were inviting me up there to like do a reading, um, but it didn't seem like a reading. It was a little unclear, um, but I went up there and of course they live uh, on Museum Mile on the Upper East Side, which is probably the fanciest block uh, in Manhattan. And, um, you know, I, I take the elevator, you know, of course it's, forget about doorman. I think they had three doormen and I take the elevator up to the penthouse, of course, and the, <laughs> the door opens into this uh, foyer uh, and this room. And as I walk in, there was nobody there to greet me. I walk in, uh, I'm looking at all this incredible art on the wall, all these you know beautiful knockoffs of uh, Monet and you know Picasso and whatever other famous artists. And I realized these aren't knockoffs. These are actual works of Monet and Picasso. And, you know, it was really quite, you know, staggering. Um, and then I go in and, um, and um, there are all these, you know, actors gathered around uh, their beautiful, spectacular living room and Paul Newman sitting in a chaise lounge, uh, drinking a beer at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning with the rest of the six pack sitting at his feet. And um, it turns out that we're going to read a movie script that they're thinking of uh, that a friend of theirs wrote and they're going to make this movie. And it's about this race car driver. And I am I've been asked to read the race car driver in this script. Which, of course, was the part Paul Newman would have played if he were 25 years old, which, of course, he was not at that time. Um, and I was. And uh, so it was a pretty. Uh, shocking moment where I was basically being asked to read the Paul Newman part in front of Paul Newman. Um, and, and Joanne was very, very sweet, very, very kind. But the reason she didn't want me to tell me in advance is because she didn't want me to get nervous. Right. Uh, she didn't want me to freak out and be tongue, you know, and yet now they've thrown this on me. And there were all these other famous actors there reading uh, as well. Karen Allen was my love interest and um, it was pretty incredible. And um <laughs> just reading this movie script where you know you're playing the part that Paul Newman would have played 20 years earlier or whatever, uh, while he's sitting there drinking beer and occasionally burping. Uh, it was just uh, it was just beyond. Right. And uh, and they, they were really I mean, he's he was quite a quiet uh, man, uh, but she was as kind as kind can be. Um, and uh, so that was just a really memorable experience. I think O.J. would unfortunately would have to come in at number two for obvious reasons. Um, it's not every day you work with someone who's going to kill two people a week later. Um, and then, of course, the exercise video was actually recreated in that FX TV series that came out a couple of years, uh, The People versus O.J. Simpson. And so an actor got played, got paid to play me in the exercise video in the reenactment. Did you think they did a good job? You know, what was funny is. Uh, they added a red headband and two red arm uh, armbands, um, which I thought was a little over the top, uh, <laughs> but it was very funny. Um, so, yeah, they didn't call me, though, to ask me, you know, what I was thinking when I was jumping up and down. I was a little disappointed. They didn't they want they didn't want to know what my motivation was. Um, I thought they really didn't do enough research. But what can you do? It's all right. Maybe and the then, next next go round. Yeah, yeah maybe the next go round. And then the third was this wonderful actress, uh, Celia Ward, 
Um, and you may, uh, if you're a, a TV buff and a film buff, um, Sila has just had an amazing career. She uh, kind of her came to, you know, we, we really learned from her, uh, learned of her in this TV series, Sisters, back in the 90s. She played Teddy. Um, she was one of the leads. And then she just went on to have this amazing career. She played Harrison Ford's uh, uh, wife who got murdered in The Fugitive, which was an amazing film in the late 80s. And then she's just continued to work. Uh, she was in David Fincher's Gone Girl. She was. She most recently has been in the series on CBS, uh, FBI. Um, and she's just worked nonstop. And um, when I worked with her on Sisters, I worked with her in George Clooney. And uh, she was just the most beautiful woman I'd ever worked with and the kindest person and really kind of took me under her wing. It was my first kind of uh, lead in a TV series. I had a recurring part on Sisters and she just made it so easy. Um, and uh, and I never forgot that. And I would run into her periodically in Hollywood and she would always stop. I ran into her on a set one day and she stopped filming and came over and said hi to me. Uh, really just an amazing person. What a, what a fantastic. Varied list. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Now, now, what's interesting is you didn't ask me my least uh, favorite people. Oh. My least, I mean, I mean, we, now if we want to get a little, I mean, I'm down. <laughs> I, I always enjoy a good, good smear campaign. What you got? <laughs> well, look, I, 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 I think I have to bag on Madonna because uh, my wife worked for Madonna uh, at Madonna's record company, Maverick Records, and Madonna basically had a policy where you couldn't look at Madonna in the hallway. Um, you were not supposed to acknowledge her presence. And, you know, I, you know, I, we hear those stories about, you know, you can't look at this actor on set. You can't do this. And when I hear those things, I, it just, it just, um, I mean, first of all, it breaks my heart that somebody would even say that to somebody else. Um, but it just, just makes me so disgusted. Um, that someone literally thinks that they're, you know, um, basically royalty in the 1700s and that the rest of the people in a work environment or on a movie set are serfs, right? Uh, and they are not to look at the, at the queen or the king, right? Uh, they do not have permission to look them in the eye or God forbid to talk to them. So, you know, that was something uh, that when my wife would tell me these stories and she worked there quite some time and she had a pretty big job there. So she, you know, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't like she was just getting coffee. She literally was the assistant to the head of A&R and had extensive dealings with Madonna who almost never acknowledged her, never spoke to her by name, never greeted her. Um, pretty, pretty disturbing behavior. Um, so there you go, Madonna. Um, congratulations. <laughs> what goes around comes around. <laughs> congratulations. Be better. Yeah, love it. Please, love it. Please. And maybe, she, and maybe, and maybe she is today, you know, you know, I'll, I'll give her a little slack, you know, look, I've made plenty of mistakes in life. Right. Um, so let's, let's hope and pray that Madonna is a lovely, kind human being today, but she was not in the nineties, in the mid nineties when she worked or when she owned Maverick Records. Yes, hopefully, as she's gotten older, has mellowed, and it's it's a redemption story we can all get behind. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a very good friend who's a Madonna fanatic, fanatic, and I told my friend the story of, of Madonna, and he paused, thought about it for a second, and he said, "I still love her." <laughs>
So there you go. Her, her, she's got plenty of fans. You know, she's going to be fine. Uh, I love it. <laughs> well, Robert, Ruse comes out. Ruse, Lying the American Dream, from Hollywood to Wall Street, comes out on February 22nd. If people want to pre-order their copy, pick it up, learn more about you, where can they go? Well, I, I'd say go to my website, robertkerbeck.com. Um, and from my website, you can order it anywhere you want to order it. Uh, independent bookstores, Barnes and Noble, God forbid, Amazon. Um, but you can, you can, and you can also learn a little bit about some other things that I've written, um, plays, short stories, films, and, uh, and also obviously Malibu Burning. So, uh, robertkerbeck.com. That's what I'd recommend. Fantastic. Well, as always, I don't think I said that word correctly. Fantastic. There we go. <laughs> As always, a delight to chat with you. Thanks so much for hopping on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for being so uh, uh, gentle. This was my first Ruse interview, and I had a blast. That's what I'm here for, is, is setting you up for success, and then it's hopefully not just straight downhill from here. We can, we can hope. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all good. It's all good. Look for the Ruse TV series coming to a screen near you soon. Oh, I can't wait. I've already got already got the DVR set. It's going to be nice. fantastic. And of course, I don't I don't think you'll have this with any of your other uh, appearances here. We got to wrap up with a corny joke as we always do. Keeping it topical for this one too. Did you hear about the writer that became a tailor? I did not. He had to make an earnest living, the Hemingway. <laughs> Get after it today, people. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you're a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.